I asked the guys to put the puppet up here because after 62 years, my knees still knock when I preach the Word of God because it's an awesome task to handle the Word of God in such a way that God gets the glory and you get nothing. And that's what I want to happen today. And uh, many years ago, uh, I used this text in a sermon and it's just gripped my heart ever since, and I want to use it again today after many, many years. Uh, so uh, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 2 and verses 14 through 20. I know this is a kind of a lengthy passage, but I know it does set the stage for what is going to follow hereafter. And so when you find your place in sacred Scripture Would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? And then Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of that great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, And you, with help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him up from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it is impossible for death to keep his hold on him. David said of him, I saw the Lord always before me because he was at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also lived in hope. Will, because you have not abandoned me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of righteousness, and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried in his tomb is here uh, this day. But he is a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not, would not abandon to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we're all witnesses of the fact. Exalt to the right hand of God has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. David did not ascend into heaven, and yet he said, 
The Lord saith to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God hath made this Jesus, whom he, you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourself from this corrupt generation. Lord, I want to ask your blessing on the reading of the word. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. In the late 1800s, uh, there was a Scottish preacher by the name of P.T. Forsythe. He wrote a book called The Positive, Positive Preaching for the Modern Mind, uh, he, in which he said, Christianity stands and falls on the preaching of the word. Now, historically, when preaching has been strong, the church has been characterized by great spiritual power. And when the preaching has been weak, the church has been weak. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 21, it pleased God that by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. In chapter 9 and verse 16, he said, and th though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory for necessity is laid upon me, yea, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. God has chosen the preaching of the gospel to send out his good news to the ends of the earth. But the question is, what is the gospel? We hear that oftentimes, preach the gospel, preach the gospel. What is the gospel? Many times what comes from the pulpit is everything but the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God has sent His Son into the world to redeem us from sin. That's what it means to preach the gospel. We're living in a news-guttered world. There is breaking news every moment of the day. If you turn on your TV, if you uh, bring up your iPod or your iPad or your telephone, there's always breaking news. I never have wondered why we just didn't have good news. Or we do have news. It's always breaking news. Let's stop the presses. Breaking news. I want to tell you today that the greatest news flash in the world is found in Acts chapter 2. And we need to realize that that is a, the, the world's greatest news. Now, I want you to think for a minute, just a moment. Put yourself in the place of these early disciples. Put yourself in the place of this news flash. It was 30 A.D., and the world was in chaos. The Roman Empire had ruled the world with an iron fist. God's people had been in captivity for more than half of their existence. Oh, I know that they'll tell you they've never been in captivity to anybody. But if you go back and check the history, you'll find that more than half of their existence they spent under the rule of someone else other than themselves. In uh, and God had promised that he would send them a great deliverer. There was a cry 
to, for them to, to be delivered. You remember in the, in the time when they were in bondage in Egypt that they cried out to the Lord and God sent them a deliverer by the name of Moses. But that was not the ultimate deliverer that he had promised to send. Uh, and, and the people would pray and ask God to send a, a deliverer and to intervene. Psalms 89 and 46 says, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Shall thy wrath burn with fire? Now, that's a legitimate question. If you had been in captivity for half your existence, that would be a, a legitimate question. Suddenly, there was a ray of hope. There was a, the news of a baby born in Bethlehem. Maybe it was the Messiah. Hopefully it was the Deliverer. He was born of a virgin from the tribe of Judah. Just as Isaiah had said in his prophecy, the prophet had predicted that a, a child would be born and his name would be called Emmanuel, God with us. That the government would be upon his shoulders. His name would be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. All of these prophecies had been in Isaiah 800 years before Jesus was born. Then he came on the scene, uh, preaching and teaching like no other priest or prophet had ever preached. He was one of a kind, so to speak. Uh, He was a prophet of prophets and yet at the same time he was not uh, did not fall under the pitfalls of sin he lived that perfect life and then one infamous day they nailed him to a cross and he died all of a sudden the wind went out of that hope he had died he had been buried in a borrowed tomb Uh, His disciples were afraid for their lives. They gathered, huddled together in upper rooms, and they they wondered what had happened. All of their hopes and fears uh, that had come to them as now their hopes had been dashed and their fears were present with them now. For several weeks, the disciples were unheard of. And then one day they became emboldened. They began to speak and tell people that this Jesus was alive. Rumors were floating around. A few believed it and and his disciples began to preach that Jesus was indeed alive and that God had made him both Christ and Lord. They gathered the people around. And then on that infamous day, that very most sacred day in Hebrew Scriptures, On the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus had died, his disciples came out with great power. Something had happened to them. They had been emboldened. They were able to speak in such a way that people were gathered to them and they began to proclaim that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. The people did not understand. The disciples are strange. They're doing things and saying things that we have never heard before. What in the world is going on? In verse 14, Peter stands up and says, listen to me. I want to explain to you what this is all about. We're not drunk. I want to tell you exactly what this is. For 800 years, God had been preparing us for this moment. You remember back in 830 when Joel came on the scene. Joel 
told us about this event that was going to happen that you see you see in here right now. The prophecy was applied. You see, the preaching of the gospel in the New Testament was the application of the prophecies. If you look in the New Testament, you'll find the Old Testament coming alive. It's in the New Testament that we see the Old Testament revealed. The Old Testament concealed is the New Testament revealed. And so that's what Peter is trying to tell him. 800 years ago, God began to prepare us for this moment. And he applies the prophecy of Joel to the situation. What was God doing? What was God up to? Well, he was jump-starting his church on earth. He was giving charge and energy, the initiation of God's power, uh, the jump-starting of his church. Now, God's power had always been here. In fact, God's Spirit had always been here. I hear people sometimes say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. Well, the Holy Spirit had come many, 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 many times. The Bible tells us about the Spirit of God that comes down on a specific individual for a specific task, for a specific period of time. And then the the Holy Spirit left that individual and that person. There are several examples First of all, a good example would be in Samson. The Bible says that he gave, God gave Samson great power. He was able to do uh, things that people could not even imagine. And then after he sinned, the Bible says that the power of God departed from him. You remember King Saul, whom God placed his spirit on to rule uh, the nation of Israel. And King Saul had God's power on him. He was able to do some great things by bringing his people together. But then he sinned. Then the Bible says, but the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. 1 Samuel 16, 14. The power that came on the disciples this time on the day of Pentecost was unlimited. It was complete. It was God's ultimate gift of the Holy Spirit. It was not for themselves. It was for the magnifying of the Lord and the edifying of the church. It was not for them. It was not that they might become famous by all the things that they could do. It was for the building up of the church and the magnifying of the Lord Jesus. It's the prophecy explained in verses 28 and following. Joel tells of a time when the coming Messiah And it would not be a surprise to any Jew because for 800 years they'd been hearing about that coming of the Holy Spirit. It would not, should not have been a surprise to the disciples because in John 14 and verse 26, it says the Holy Spirit, when he will come, he will teach you all the things that I've been telling you. You see, they should have known. Every Jew should have known. Every disciple should have known that the Holy Spirit had been promised and and the Holy Spirit had come, but yet they were surprised. Joel was not the only part that predicted the coming of Jesus. Isaiah, as I mentioned a moment ago, in two or three of his different uh, passages, he tells about the coming of the Messiah. 700 years before that, he says, his kingdom shall have no end. He shall reign upon the throne of David in order and with righteousness forever. Joel saw in this verse the start and the end 
He saw the start as being the day of Pentecost when God's Spirit would be poured out upon all flesh. He saw the end when Christ returns. There's a section right in that prophecy. If you look at it real closely, you'll find that that never has happened yet. That's to come in Christ's return. But in verse 21, I want you to notice that a pattern had been established. A pattern had been established. This is how God works. This is how God has always worked, even in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, in in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7, the pattern was established. God had called out a people, and he had given that people the charge to touch the lives of the whole world. He said, in you and through you, all the peoples of the world, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Did the Israelites take that as a missionary moment for them? Absolutely not. They took it as a personal guarantee for them. And they failed many, many times to reach out to a lost and dying world. They hovered it to themselves and took it as a personal uh, accolade or personal reward. The pattern is established. Redemption has always been available to those who trust in God. You say, well, wait a minute now. Brother Paul, redemption didn't happen until Jesus died on the cross. Redemption happens every time a person puts their absolute trust and faith in God. If you look at Hebrews chapter 11, there is a roll call of faithful. All of these are Old Testament prophets. They're not any of them New Testament prophets. They're Old Testament prophets. And what did God say about the Old Testament prophets? God counted it as righteousness to them that believe. All of those Old Testament prophets had the uh, the opportunity to be redeemed. Salvation is in the name of Jesus Christ. He's, He's God's ultimate gift. When he talked about the gift of salvation and the gifts of salvation, they're different. The gift of salvation is the Holy Spirit himself. The gifts of salvation are the byproducts of what the Holy Spirit does in your life and in my life. He says salvation is only in the name of Jesus. Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2 says, In times past God spoke uh, to our forefathers in times past by the prophets, but now in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Peter stood before the Sanhedrin and preached this sermon. Salvation is in no other. There is no other name under heaven given where men might be saved. You see, salvation comes in the name of Jesus Christ. God's Messiah is here. The promised one has appeared. Beginning in verse 22, he says, God's promised one is here. This man is. Jesus. God's promise was a person. It was not a period of time. It was not a time of glory. It wasn't wasn't a, a, a person that was a great captain, army captain that delivered all of the children of Israel. It was in a person. God's promise has always been a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Now, John recognized that when Jesus came to the river Jordan to be asked to be baptized by John the Baptist. John recognized that. 
The next day he said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John recognized early in the ministry of Jesus. He recognized him as being one who takes away the sin of the world. The apostle Paul recognized him for he said, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. 2 Corinthians 5, 19. Notice his credentials. You see, we always want to look at somebody's credentials, don't we? If a person comes to your place of business and employee tries to get a job, you're trying to hire a person, you want to know his credentials, don't you? You know, what have you done? What kind of person are you? Okay. He gave his credentials. Number one, verse 22, he was accredited by God. By miracles and signs and wonders. Peter said, this man accredited by God, by miracles and signs and wonders. And you will know all about these. You've heard, you've seen those miracles. You've seen those signs. He was accredited by God. Secondly, he was appointed by God. Verse 23, determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. He was determined by God. He was appointed by God. He was the man that God appointed. And then he was authenticated by God in the resurrection, verse 24. In the resurrection from the dead, he was authenticated by God. But also Peter said something else. This man who was appointed by God, accredited by God, and authenticated by God, he died. He died. In fact, he was turned over by you. And you, with the hand, with the help of wicked hands, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. That's about as bad as you can get. That is about as bad a a death as you can possibly get. Dying on a cruel cross. And you were responsible, at least humanly speaking, for his death. He said, but not only that, God didn't leave him there. Verse 36, God has made him both Lord and Christ. He's the anointed one. God's power is revealed. He died there on that place called Calvary. Someone said, God planned it, Jesus performed it, but men merely participated in it. God's power is revealed here. The cross was not a tragedy, but a triumph. The resurrection authenticated the redemption made possible on the cross. His body was placed in Joseph's tomb, but he is not there. He has risen and ascended to make intercession for us. He is Lord. That's a strong statement. Peter made that statement because he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt what he was talking about. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Therefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. Bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, when I read that verse in Philippians chapter 2, I'm reminded that that verse is 
always true. It'll always be true. It's true now, and it's going to be true as long as time exists. There's coming a time when every person, every person, every person, Sometimes I hear people talking about, well, I'm mean and I'm going to hell and we're going to have a party. Let me tell you something. One day you're going to fall on your face before the Lord. Your knees are going to bow and you're going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He made provisions for your salvation and you did not receive it. And you can talk about your meanness and your badness and your unconcernedness as long as you want to, but there's coming a time when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, because that's when that happens, God gets the glory. The disciples were, had power to change the world. They had the power to change the world by the message that they were pre- preaching. My question is, do we? Do we have the power to change the world? No, I don't have the power to change the world. No, you don't have the power to change the world. But the message we proclaim has the power to change the world. It's the message. It's it's not the messenger, but it's the message. But we as messengers must continue to proclaim the message. We can't stop. There's no quitting place. We cannot stop. Verse 37 through 40 says, and when they heard this, they were cut to their heart. Personal action is demanded. Personal action is demanded. What shall we do? Every person must do something in light of this message. No one can ignore the message or the Messiah. Conviction was brought about by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, that's how conviction is always brought. (laughs) You know, you can have a powerful preacher up here, but if the Holy Spirit doesn't convict your heart, it just goes in one ear and right out the other. And that's what happens oftentimes. We sit there and we play on our thumbs and we think about things we're going to do after we get out of church. And it just goes one in, in one ear and right out the other. And oftentimes we're on a toboggan slide to hell and don't know it. What shall we do? Well, Peter gives them three things. Number one, he says, repent. Repent. Repent simply means to turn around, go in the opposite direction. Sin has has been the blame for our condition. Sin separates us from God and God will not hear us. Isaiah 59, 2 says, your sins have separated you from your God and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear you. Have you ever wondered why your prayers don't get any higher than the ceiling? Well, maybe there's some sin blocking it in your life. It's always good. I never miss an opportunity to confess my sins before I get up and preach. Because... If the vessel's not clean, the message will be muddled. Repent of sin. Sin offends the holy God and separates from Him because God is holy. He cannot ignore or excuse or tolerate our sin. Luke 13, 3 says, I tell you, 
Unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. So, what to do? Repent. Repent of sin. Secondly, verse 38, renounce self. Complete obedience is symbolized in the baptism. Now, be careful when you interpret this verse. Because there are entire denominations built on a misinterpretation of this verse. The Greek preposition ice in this verse does not mean cause, but it means results. The same thing applies if you look at the preaching of the gospel by Jonah when he went to Nineveh. The people of Nineveh repented because of the preaching of Jonah. They didn't repent to get Jonah to preach to them. And sometimes we interpret that verse, repent and be baptized so that you can get something. This ice, this Greek uh, preposition ice is talking about results, not cause. We don't, we don't be baptized in order to get salvation. You baptize because you are saved. You're being obedient to God's command for your life. We're not baptized in order to receive forgiveness. We are baptized because we have already received forgiveness. If you go into that baptismal pool and you're still disobedient, you just got ducked. You didn't, got, you didn't get baptized. Renounce yourself. Baptism is a symbol of complete obedience to the Lord. And then the last thing he says, receive his power. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this sermon is 2,000 years old. But it's as fresh as your newspaper this morning. It's the world's greatest newsflash. And yet we've heard it so many times until we just simply ignore it. What do you do when the television comes on and says, breaking news, breaking news? You stop everything you're doing and you sit down like this? No. They've said breaking news, breaking news, breaking news so many times you ignore it. And that's precisely what many people do with this message. Repent, renounce yourself, and receive his power. To become a child of God, we must make Jesus Christ Lord of all, over all. Is it any wonder that the watchword of the early church was, Jesus is Lord? You know, they didn't, they didn't greet one another. How do you do this morning? Sure, I'm glad you came to our church. It's Jesus is Lord. That was their commitment. That was their life commitment. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of their life. He's Lord of everything. They had made him Lord. Therefore, they were a part of his kingdom. My question to you, is he your Lord? Is he your Lord? Is he the one to, for, 
from whom you take directions? Is he the one that you depend on for every experience of your life? Is he Lord? Someone has said, and I'm not absolutely sure where it came from, but someone who says, if he is not Lord of all, he will not be Lord at all. Absolutely true. I don't know who said it, but it sounds mighty good to me. And I believe it's biblical. I believe it's scripture. That if he's not Lord of all of your life, he will not be your Lord at all. And I wonder today how many people are going around who think they're going to heaven, who've walked down the aisle, shook a preacher's hand, got ducked in a pool, and sat down on the front row, and that's where they've been sitting for the last 50 years. I wonder how many people fall in that category. I'm not happy anybody's going to hell. I'm just sad that we don't hear the greatest news flash ever delivered. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this message that was preached 2,000 years ago. Lord, we pray that the ears of the hearers may be open. Lord, if there is sin in their life, that it will be confessed. They'll repent of that sin. They'll renounce sin, they'll renounce self, and they'll receive the power of the Holy Spirit. It's only when the Holy Spirit of God comes to live within our lives that He becomes our inward teacher that we know how to live. So teach us today, Lord. Teach us. Infill us. Empower us that we might be able to preach the gospel that Jesus Christ is coming to the world to save sinners. And Lord, that every person that does not confess him will spend an eternity apart from him. Lord, Lord, let that message go out loud and clear. If there's one here today that's never trusted him, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God has hovered around his heart throughout all of this message. God, that you will speak to him even now. There may be somebody here that needs to come and become a part of this fellowship. This is a faith fellowship. We walk by faith and not by sight. And I I encourage you and I plead with you to come if that's who you are today. Then there may be people here that there's sin in your life and you need to get it out. The only way it can be gotten out is to confess it and let the Lord cover it in his blood Get rid of it, because that's the only way to be clean. Lord, I pray now that you would do your work and your will in this invitation. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen.